0: Brooklyn, across the river, night or day, a beehive of activity. These are the streets that everyone knows and everyone wants to see. Brooklyn, the city of progress and achievement, a proud city and a proud people. Brooklyn, may it always grow so beautiful.
1: Brooklyn is still as active, progressive, and proud as it was in 1949. And to celebrate, we just launched a new daily podcast from and about America's fourth city. It's called 112BK, and we'll let the show's host tell you a little more about it.
2: Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, 112BK is a new daily news and culture show about and from Brooklyn. I'm Ashley Ford, and I'm excited to talk about the matters that matter to you.
1: Make sure to check out 112BK for a daily dose of everything Brooklyn. For now, spend a day with us, a day out of our forgotten past. Starting with a walk on the Brooklyn Heights promenade, where a mysterious plaque asks more questions than it answers. Next, a tour takes us underground and back in time. And finally, a giant fossil dug up out of Brooklyn's industrial age has been retrofitted for its shiny new future. Can you dig it? Today's headlines, yesterday's news. Night or day, may it always grow, in Brooklyn, USA. Here's Sarah.
3: That's the sound of the Brooklyn Queens Expressway from the Brooklyn Heights Promenade. It's a park that runs above the BQE. If you're a New Yorker, you've probably been stuck in traffic on this highway at some point. It was built throughout the 50s and 60s to the chagrin of some neighborhood residents and to the delight of city planners who believed that cars and highways were essential parts of the American dream.
1: Come on, we're going, we're going The, 61 Chevy's by Chevrolet. the BQE
3: runs through Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn Heights, Williamsburg, and Greenpoint before crossing into Queens. A few years ago at Brooklyn Bridge Park, I came across this plaque. It said that the BQE and the Brooklyn Heights Promenade replaced family homes and backyards. It listed a URL for more information that led to a broken website. So I decided to do some digging on my own. The BQE is one of many highways built by Robert Moses, the New York City Parks Commissioner in the mid-20th century.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, this is an historic occasion, and it's a unique improvement.
3: That's Moses speaking at the dedication of the Brooklyn Heights Promenade. And Moses, he was not your average bureaucrat.
0: The emergency work of this world is not done either by critics or by constipated comma chasers. is <laughs> the most important non-elected public official probably in American history, with the possible, and I say possible, exception of Alexander Hamilton or J. Edgar Hoover.
3: That's Kenneth T. Jackson. He's a history professor at Columbia University, and he's the editor of the Encyclopedia of New York City. Jackson says Moses was controversial.
0: Because he was ruthless. If he decided he was going to build the Brooklyn Queens Expressway on this route and with destroying these houses, that's what he was going to do. And you could organize all the protests you wanted to.
3: Some did protest Moses's plans with mixed success. Jane Jacobs famously led the charge against a highway Moses wanted to build through lower Manhattan. It would have devastated her beloved Greenwich Village. If anything was going to happen to reverse the way things were being done. The citizens had to take some initiative and the citizens had to frustrate the planners. Other communities weren't as lucky. Vincent Favorito was a longtime resident of Carroll Gardens. Before he died in 2014, he told the Brooklyn Historical Society that the BQE totally changed the fabric of the neighborhood he grew up in.
0: It was really less less like a, a neighborhood because once you got the... Uh, Expressway, you have massive trucks going through. No thought was ever given to that
3: aspect of it. Carroll Gardens is still a vibrant neighborhood, but it's not the one Favorito remembered. And that's okay. Neighborhoods change, cities evolve. But Favorito said there's a specific reason why his neighborhood and other immigrant neighborhoods like his were hit harder by the effects of highways.
0: They wanted to tear out parts of Brooklyn Heights. And they said, no, 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 not here. And uh, they were able to divert the highway and build the promenade down there, which was fine. But they had the influence and the money to do that in our area, basically immigrants, Italians, not uh, very politically strong. They just uh, let the, the city uh, cut a hole, and still it hurts.
3: Brooklyn Heights residents pressured Moses to reroute the expressway and build the Brooklyn Heights Promenade above it. This was one of the few times Moses listened to neighborhood residents who were in the way of something he wanted to build. Peter Bray is the president of the Brooklyn Heights Association. Like Favorito, he said that Brooklyn Heights residents had the political capital and the resources to do something about the BQE in their community. While in the Bronx...
0: When Robert Moses ran the Cross Bronx Highway and the Sheridan Expressway uh, through an area like the South Bronx. The uh, neighborhoods there and the populations there didn't have the uh, same resources uh, that a uh, organized and more affluent community like Brooklyn Heights had to resist where that highway was located.
3: In the 1960s, a group of neighborhood residents started an organization called the Community Conservation and Improvement Council, or kick for short. They were a group of mostly architects, bankers, and lawyers who fought for Brooklyn Heights to become New York City's first official historic district. And they won. Otis Pearsall was one of the founding members of kick Pearsall said that preserving the architecture in the neighborhood helped preserve the character of the community.
0: Because it was a collection of houses and not high-rises, it was possible for people to know each other.
3: Pearsall and his neighbors were able to organize and protect their community from Moses and his developments. Historic preservation has gone way beyond anything Pearsall and his friends from Kick ever imagined, and he's proud of that.
0: I feel very pleased to have started something that has had the, the capacity to save Bits of New York has been a huge boon to the city to preserve these areas and not allow the city to uh, lose its character.
3: Tourists and locals alike come from all over to admire the view from the Brooklyn Heights Promenade and Brooklyn Bridge Park. I went back there to find that plaque, but parts of Brooklyn Bridge Park were under construction. The plaque, like so much else on the waterfront, had disappeared. I asked some people in the park if they knew anything about what was here before or if they'd ever heard of Robert Moses.
0: No, not at all. No, (laughs) no idea.
4: No, who is he?
3: No one I spoke to had any idea that the Brooklyn Queens Expressway displaced family homes. They had no idea that it would have taken more land from Brooklyn Heights had it not been for the neighborhood residents who were able to organize against Moses and his highway. From the park, visitors get a spectacular view of the Lower Manhattan skyline, the Statue of Liberty, and Governor's Island. Small waves ebb and flow on the bank of the East River. And below it all, just a few steps away, hums the Brooklyn Queens Expressway.
1: That piece was produced and edited by Sarah Curson. For just under two decades in the middle of the 19th century, you could catch a train straight from the heart of Brooklyn. After that, the story goes off the rails. Here's Bob. I got all these people behind
0: me. Why are they here? I mean, we're not giving away donuts. We're here for one thing. Did you know that there's a secret subway tunnel right underneath
4: me? I didn't know that either. But this man did. His name is Bob Diamond. Well, the best place to start is at the beginning, usually, so it's in some kind of context.
2: Bob Diamond was the one-man band behind the discovery of the tunnel under Atlantic Avenue in 1980.
4: My name is Bob Diamond. This is the entrance to the world's oldest subway tunnel, which is under Atlantic Avenue in downtown Brooklyn, New York.
2: Bob was 20 years old when he struck adolescent gold, the tunnel, gummed up, buried, and largely forgotten under a well-trafficked Brooklyn street. Bob threw himself into the rail fan community in Brooklyn. He advocated for funding and gave walking tours of the tunnel for years.
4: And I got to be in there for, what, 32 years or something?
2: <laughs> but in 2010, the city revoked his contract.
4: And the reason I got kicked out is because we finally found that locomotive. Back in 1979, on a day not unlike this one, you know, dark, rainy, I put the radio on and the news came on.
0: Good morning, this is Gil Gross. Keep tuned for the day's top news. Apparently my eye and my brain just can't work hand in hand. Let's see what's happening on this day in New York on uh, the 1st
4: says, oh, uh, a new book just came out, and according to this person's research, John Wilkes Booth was never captured. He really escaped and died in Texas. The way he escaped was he hid inside this tunnel under Atlantic Avenue next to the steam locomotive that's laying on its side under Atlantic Avenue near Columbia Street. So I was like, what did I just hear? What is this? What do I sign up for this thing?
2: A 19-year-old Bob and his mom called up the radio station. Gil Gross didn't know anything about the tunnel, but he put Bob in touch with the book's author, G.J.A. O'Toole.
4: So I called G.J.A. O'Toole, and I said, hey, what's up with the tunnel?
2: At first, O'Toole didn't know what Bob was talking about. And then...
4: He goes, oh, that tunnel. Someone told me about it when I was a kid. Supposedly, uh, Murder Incorporated used to dump dead bodies down there. I thought it would be interesting to embellish my book, he says. So I went to like every library in the city and I pulled out old newspapers on microfilm and microfiche, dusty books where the paper's so old it crumples into dust while you're turning the pages.
0: A great railroad at work is a title of it
4: was built by Cornelius Vanderbilt in 1844. as part of a much longer chain of railroads that ran from Boston down to Charleston, South Carolina. Trains back then didn't have air brakes. So if a train was shoving along at 30 miles an hour and then a little kid ran in front of it, it would take 900 feet to stop, which is too long city blocks. So by the time you stopped your train, you ran someone over or cut a cow in half, or smashed up somebody's wagon. (laughs) The railroad didn't really care about the liability of running people over or anything because they couldn't be sued. They did get upset though, because it messed up their timetable. So they decided to build a tunnel under Atlantic Avenue to get the trains off the surface of the street.
2: But Bob wasn't just digging up railroad history. He was exhuming ghosts.
4: A lot of people died down there because they fell off the train while it was moving. So a lot of weird stuff went on. They reported poltergeist activity from the very first day it opened, that uh, pebbles would come flying in through the train windows even though nobody was down there throwing them, stories about bootleggers and counterfeiters hiding down there, and supposedly they hid their goodies down in this tunnel. And according to a newspaper article in the New York Times from the 1890s, when you went down into the treasure chamber under the street, you didn't need a torch because there was so much gold that it glowed in the dark by itself. Then, you know, H.P. Lovecraft wrote stories about it. Alistair Crowley wrote stories about it. I am a writer of Tales of the Uncanny. I suppose my work is intended to fill the gaps occupied in years past by religion. Walt Whitman wrote stories about it after it was closed up in 1861. It became sort of like Brooklyn, Brooklyniana. Meanwhile, I located this one manhole cover in the middle of the street using an old map that seemed to be the one that went inside. So I went into the gas company office, and the chief engineer of the gas company is there, and he goes, What do you need for this, Bob? I said, Well, they said that there's seven-foot man-eating rats running around in that tunnel, and maybe alligators. So I'm going to need a ten-foot-long Sicilian toothpick crowbar to beat up these alligators. And he goes, Yeah, what else well, said do you need? This- Poison gas from World War I down there that the Germans were brewing. So I'm gonna need a gas mask and an air tank. He goes, yeah, Yeah, you need anything else? Send out a couple of big guys with sledgehammers and big crowbars to break through the stone wall. So I went home that night and I'm all excited, and I went to see Raiders of the Lost Ark that just opened up got some information here but we can't make anything out of it and maybe you can oh, well, the city of
0: Tennis is one of the possible resting places of the lost ark
4: so i'm going to sleep that night and i'm thinking about finding the lost ark of the covenant and digging around and doing all this cool stuff all of a sudden i'm like getting shaken and it's my mom and she's like wake up i'm like what are you talking about it's four o'clock in the morning i got five hours she goes No. Get up, something stinks. You told them where the manhole was, right? This was too easy. She said to me, get over there right now because
2: you're about to get robbed. When Bob arrived, the whole street was blocked off.
4: They had engineers and trucks and about 100 people running around and they were closing up the manhole.
2: According to Bob, the gas company didn't want to work with a kid. So they took his research and the tip about the location of the tunnel and tried to sidestep him. When Bob showed up, the gas company still hadn't found anything, and they were about to give up.
4: So I said, can I take a look for myself? And he goes, OK, you got five minutes. So they tied this cable around me. They gave me an air tank, a gas mat, and a walkie-talkie. They attached a belt with a cable. And they said, you have exactly five minutes to crawl around in there. And then if you don't come out yourself, we're just going to drag you out with this cable. I crawled 60 feet. So I'm laying there, shoved into this crevice with this air tank on my back, banging on the brick roof, and I'm like, okay, now what do I do? So I said, well, what did Indiana Jones do when he couldn't quite find the opening to the well of the soul? Well, he knew where to dig, and he just began digging by hand like a dog. So I began just clawing away at that dirt.
2: A few handfuls of dirt, and Bob was looking at a concrete wall and a plugged-up doorway. He had found a way in.
4: All I could do was laugh because all that went through my head were all these experts telling me there's no such place, that they looked for it when they were kids and they couldn't find it, therefore it didn't exist.
2: Bob radioed up for reinforcements. So
4: we're all laying there for about three or four hours picking away at these bricks that were plugging up this doorway. And then we got an opening pop through and this big blast of cold air came out from the other side, just like in Raiders of the Lost Ark when they opened up that tomb. And once you get in there, you don't hear any sound. It's like New York City never existed. And the air is all different because it was air that was bottled up in 1861. So it smells different, you know, had a lot of oxygen in it. And it was a lot nicer in there than it was out in the street.
2: Brooklyn Independent Television.
0: Now, how did you discover? I mean, you know, you're walking down, you heard the ghost, how did this happen?
4: Well, it was really by accident. I wasn't really looking for the tunnel, but it kind of just was looking for me, really. I well, We got a wide spectrum of people. I mean, we got college professors. We got computer geeks. We got occult researchers. We had ghost hunters. We had architecture students studying it. When the tunnel was closed up, we were pulling in 500 people a day at its peak right before it was closed.
0: Dr. Jones. Again, we see there is nothing you can possess which I cannot take away. December 2010.
4: It was like about two weeks after these people from a big media organization approached me and said they wanted to do a documentary about the tunnel and about looking for the locomotive. So, I can't say who they are. But look in the, look in the old newspaper articles, you'll see who it was. I just can't say.
2: It was National Geographic.
4: They said, we don't believe for one minute there's a locomotive down there, but you looking for it makes for good television. You know, you're a little eccentric, and you know, you tell good tales.
2: National Geographic hooked Bob up with new resources.
4: The cesium vapor magnetometer.
2: And with new tools and an old map, they began hunting for the locomotive.
4: So they scanned the street, and when they got to the spot where I told them, there it was. You could see the image on the screen, this bright red image because it's so filled up with magnetic energy.
2: That bright red image was the closest anyone ever came to finding Bob's locomotive. This is where Bob's story gets muddy. Just weeks after National Geographic's cesium vapor magnetometer detected a 20-foot something under Atlantic Avenue, Bob and the Nat Geo team were shut out of the tunnel. Officially, the FDNY shut the tunnel down for safety reasons, but it's unclear why if the tunnel was unsafe or a fire hazard, Bob's tours went unchecked for so many years. An article in The Verge blames gentrification for the sudden shutdown. Bob blames everyone. He blames National Geographic for involving the Smithsonian and the Smithsonian for carelessly digging without permission. He
4: said, look, this isn't, this isn't like grave robbing in Ethiopia. This is New York. You will get caught. So they went out there, they began digging up the street and they got caught. So. He blames a group called the Professional
2: Archaeologists of New York City for conspiring against him from 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 the beginning.
4: They wrote this nasty letter to the city saying that only they should be allowed to go inside because they're professional archaeologists from Columbia University and NYU. And he blames former mayor Michael Bloomberg. He blew a fuse because everything had to be about him. He's the superstar. No one else is allowed to be on TV for anything involving the city except for him. I guess he has, like, a Napoleonic clump complex or something.
2: In his words, Bob is 99.999% sure that the train is down there. He has spent the past several years trying to get back in the tunnel.
4: I mean, I still get people calling here trying to get appointments for tunnel tours. When's the last time they called for a tunnel tour appointment, Sherry?
5: Just this week. Yeah.
2: Huh. After Bob was kicked out of the tunnel, he withdrew from the railfan community. He has spent the past few years tangled up in lawsuits against the DOT, the FDNY, and National Geographic. He says that he has suffered PTSD over the fight for the tunnel. In the six and a half years since Bob has seen the inside of the tunnel, he has had plenty of time to tell his story over and over again, in his head and out loud. Oh, well,
4: it's like a story that you would read to a kid right before bedtime. You know and it's kind of like David versus Goliath and everyone likes the David and Goliath story where David wins once in a while.
2: And in the interim his obsession with reclaiming the tunnel that defined him has only intensified.
4: My bill is going to be a request to hand back the tunnel except with something modified in the agreement that I can never get kicked out of there again based on the whim of some office worker sitting in a cubicle who's never even been down there.
5: Indiana Jones, (sighs) always knew someday you'd come walking back through my door.
1: That piece was produced by Filippo Piscopo and edited by Emily Bogosian.
0: I could have stand I could have had class I could have been a
5: contender I could have been somebody
6: The New York City shoreline as we know it today is a far cry from where Marlon Brando worked In the 1954 film On the Waterfront Brando plays Terry Malloy, a longshoreman caught up in the politics of the Mafia-controlled coastline. Open
0: us. We got the fattest piers and the fattest harbor in the world. Everything moves in and out. We take our cut.
6: While longshoremen once lined the waterfront, moving cargo off ships box by box, the modern Brooklyn harbor front is a place where you can sit in the shadow of an art sculpture or eat key lime pie off a stick. That's because in the past century, globalization, technological advances, and the rising price of land in New York City have meant fewer and fewer traditional industrial jobs are available. So people like Mayor de Blasio envision shifting traditional jobs on the waterfront to new growing fields.
0: in film and TV, in garment manufacturing, in advanced manufacturing. This area which right now is so obviously underutilized is gonna be a whole new part of our economy in New York City.
6: However, one vestige of the working waterfront that will continue to last, the old warehouse buildings.
7: So I want to just uh, need a couple hands here to grab some corners so we can all take a look at this map.
6: Andrew Gustafson is an expert on one of these relics, the Brooklyn Army Terminal. He's contracted by the city to give tours of the building. He starts by unfolding a giant map of New York Harbor.
7: One of the things you notice, if you look at the shoreline of Brooklyn, and you look at the west side of Manhattan, and you look over here in New Jersey, you see this very jagged shoreline. You see all these piers. That's because historically, these were the areas of um, concentration of commercial shipping in New York Harbor. What you're seeing on this map today is basically the vestiges of where these ships used to come in. Historically, Brooklyn was known as the Walled City. It was called that because when you approach it from the water, you saw nothing but an unbroken wall of warehouses and factories. Um, It was completely industrialized from Bay Ridge to Greenpoint. There was no parks. There was no public access. Um, This is a totally working waterfront. Um, That's obviously changed a lot today.
6: He motions around him at the terminal, a blocky cement fortress on the water near Sunset Park. While the exterior is pretty much the same that it was in 1919, Andrew says that inside it's had many lives.
7: So we need to go back to the history of World War One. So World War One starts in July of 1914. But the US doesn't enter the war until April of 1917, 100 years ago. And so When we enter the war, the U.S. needs to begin an enormous mobilization and do something that the U.S. has never done before. We need to get an army of about 2 million men and the supplies to support them across the Atlantic Ocean.
6: So the federal government begins a rush job of building the army terminal, but it's not finished until 1919 after the war ends. However, in World War II, it becomes the regional nerve center for mobilizing 3.2 million troops and supplies. Soldiers fly through the terminal on their way to war like candy on a conveyor belt.
5: The Arm Guard Center, you stay there until you get a ship. I think I stayed there a week.
6: John Custodio was one of those soldiers.
5: It's a tremendous big hut. And if you could look down and there you see 40 tables this way and another 40 here and everybody sleeps in that same building, and they eat in the same
6: building. He's from Lowell, Massachusetts, and was born... Uh,
5: July third, 1921. I'm an old man.
6: He served in World War II and lives in Sunset Park. He was interviewed about his time in the war for an oral history project by the Brooklyn Historical Society.
5: Yeah, I made five trips across, and somebody said, well, do you see any action? And I tell him, you cannot go in the Atlantic Ocean or the Mediterranean without seeing action.
6: After being discharged in 1946, he settled in Brooklyn, had a family. He continued to meet with other veterans. They even put up a memorial to the unit he served with in Sunset Park.
5: My arm guard unit used to meet up in um, King's Plaza Diner once a month. The King's Plaza Diner was torn down now. Uh, I don't think there's any, any arm God people around anymore. I'm the oldest one, I guess.
6: Of all the soldiers who passed through the Army terminal, only one has his picture up on the, DOA, the wall today. Elvis
0: Presley, Private Elvis Presley of the United States Army, is uh, due to embark for Germany today.
6: Elvis was drafted in 1958. He gave a press conference on the pier and then had to board the ship several times to make sure the photographers got their shot. He was quite charming.
0: Quite a few. (laughs) Elvis, what's your idea of the ideal girl? Female, sir.
7: This is what we all came to see, right? Let me explain to you what you're looking at. Uh, This is the atrium.
6: Just beyond Elvis' photo is an impressive uh, open-air courtyard designed by Cass Gilbert, known for the Woolworth Building and the U.S. Supreme Court. The room was once all encased in glass, and there are little balconies visible from each floor that look like steps for giants. Trains could run right into the atrium and unload their freight. Then an electric crane would use a cable to pick up the cargo.
7: So they could position that cable over the item they wanted to pick up, lower it down, attach the cable, and then pick it up and drop it off into these balconies. So these balconies are offset like this, so you can reach every level and every sector of the building with an overhead crane.
6: But things changed after the war. The cranes are rusty now.
7: New York City and Brooklyn's main advantages as a center of shipping, we have a huge inventory of warehouse space and we have a huge labor force.
6: With the advent of crane technology and the shipping container in the 1950s, one crane operator could suddenly move way more than a longshoreman like Brando's Terry Malloy could on his own. The local waterfront industry slowly declines and the Brooklyn Army Terminal closes in 1966 and lies vacant. But its story isn't close to over. In 1981, the city purchased the building and began millions of dollars in renovations. The idea was to create office space for hundreds of small businesses, with an emphasis on tech and light manufacturing.
7: The first tenant to move in here is a company called Momo Dressing, um, and they make Japanese-style dips, marinades, uh, and salad dressing.
6: There's also a chocolatier, a spring maker, and a biotech center that the city hopes will expand. And they've even found a use for the last remaining pier, a new ferry stop that opened this spring. Also in the middle of the atrium, a giant Statue of Liberty sitting on top of a tank. In a world of endless apocalyptic realities. In the fall of 2016, artist collective Creative Time was drawn to the terminal building, and they turned it into a political haunted house as an immersive art experience.
2: Creative Time and artist Pedro
6: Reyes invite you to experience the haunted house that already exists in our minds. No child will be left behind. Art projects, artisan food businesses, this all sounds very exciting, a new use for this old space. But one person here today to see the terminal that's thinking about the bigger picture is Jens Toft, a tourist from Denmark. Uh,
1: in
0: Copenhagen, Denmark. This this process is going on and has been going
3: on for about 15, 20 years.
6: He's visiting New York for the first time with his family. He's very taken with Brooklyn and its gentrification. The changes at the Brooklyn Army Terminal remind him of what he's seen at home. He himself works in a converted chocolate factory from 1905.
3: And a lot of the uh, industrial complexes and. And harbor buildings are, are being uh, refurbished and, and, and transformed into uh, small industries,
0: offices, and, uh, and apartments.
6: He says, too, that these areas are now trendy and that it feels like one culture has taken over. And that's why he wants to know the story of the Brooklyn Army Terminal, because it's a shift happening all over the world. The city hopes the Army Terminal will play a new role in New York City industry by making laptops more ubiquitous on the waterfront than cranes. But how that will affect the surrounding neighborhoods in this time when Brooklyn is changing too quickly to retain its longtime residents remains to be seen.
1: That piece was produced and edited by Sofia Politzakar. Brooklyn USA is produced and edited by me, Sasha Mathias, and Emily Bagosian. Thanks to producer Sarah Kirsten for demystifying the plaque on the Brooklyn Heights promenade. Thanks to producer Filippo Piscopo for digging up the tunnel under Atlantic Avenue, and to Emily for sifting through the rubble. And thanks to producer Sofia Politzakar for taking us back in time and on a tour of the Brooklyn Army Terminal's storied past. Thank you to Andrew Gustafson and Turnstile Tours for their help with this piece and providing the interview with John Custodio. This episode featured music from the DeWolf and Cuneverse Music Libraries, an audio from the New York City Municipal Archives, and the 1949 documentary log Brooklyn, written by Frank P. Donovan. If you like what you hear, think we got something wrong, or just want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us at Brick Radio, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. For more information on this show and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org radio.
4: See, uh, people don't realize that uh, before television was invented, they used radio. So, uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, Orson Welles. He had that story, War of the Worlds, on the radio. And people were shooting each other and jumping out the window because they thought it was real. So, the reason for this is because the most potent form of, of, of imagination comes out of the images your own mind itself creates. And that's the best way of doing it.